Museum of the Moving Image welcomes you to the Pinewood Dialogues Online, an archive of conversations with innovative creative figures in film, television, and digital media. Visit Museum of the Moving Image in New York City or online at www.movingimage.us. Please welcome Bud Bedeker. Two new hips, so you'll have to bear with <laughs> I was a real macho. They told me to wait uh, six months before I got the second one, and I did it in six weeks, and I'm really paying for it. <laughs> no. Last night, uh, when we ended, uh, after a great, great couple of days, I said to the audience, the hell with the Oscars, this is the best weekend of my life. <laughs> so I'll start with you the same way. How did you get into bullfighting? Because this is... Um... I got to Mexico City and a, a very overweight fat man who spoke beautiful English, and I learned later that's why he was talking to me, commandeered me, and he asked me one of the few lies I've ever told. I've always told the truth in Hollywood, and that's why I've had so much trouble. But uh, he said to me, how'd you like the bullfight this afternoon? And I said, I would love to be a bullfighter. Now, believe me. I didn't mean that, but I figured <laughs> I would take, you know, a few lessons, and then when I got time to fight a bull, I thought, they're little cows to start with, my mother would be terribly ill in Evansville, Indiana, and I'd get the hell out of there. So the next morning, uh, at 8 o'clock, there was a knock on the door, and we'd just gotten back to the hotel, Tom and I, at 2 o'clock in the morning, and they said, Mr. Bedeker, pronouncing it right, I was 19, they said, Lorenzo Garza is downstairs to see you. In other words, Jesus is here and you can join the church. <laughs> so knowing it was phony and knowing that my pal in the other twin bed had made this up as a joke, I said, fine, you know, send him up. And Clark Gable's down here to teach you how to act. <laughs> so I went back to sleep. And in about three minutes, the knock on the door and I went to the door and there was the manager of the hotel and Don Lorenzo Garza. And he was there to teach me to bullfight. And I found out very quickly that the old fat gentleman who was such a good friend of mine the night before was General Maximino Camacho, the brother of the president of Mexico. And he was the only one in the world who could call up Lorenzo Garza and say, get your tail over to the Reyes Hotel and teach the red-headed football player how to, how to fight a bull. <laughs> and I did and fell in love with it. And before I could get out of town, they had hired me for a technical director on Blood and Sand. I just have to ask you about bullfighting, because I'm never going to find this out for myself. What, really? is, it li what is it like <laughs> to be in there? It, it's terrifying. <laughs> but I never, when I was a, a matador, if you wanted to meet high society in, in, in Hollywood, you went to Tijuana every Sunday, and there was Lana Turner, Eva Gardner, Spencer Tracy, everybody was there. It was very fashionable. I never try to sell it, but I will tell you one thing, and then we'll get off the bullfight yeah. subject. Uh, it's not fashionable today. I'm glad I did it, because I can promise every one of you guys here, after you've been a matador and fought bulls, there's nothing in Hollywood that's going to scare you. <laughs> Around 1960, or after you made Legs Diamond, you essentially left Hollywood in a way to do the project that was a you know, a real labor of love that was a major turning point in your life. Andrew Saris, who's one of the critics who really appreciated your work from the beginning, in 1968 wrote, 
Does anybody know where Bud Bedecker is? The last we heard, our gifted friend was on his way to Mexico. Way to Mexico to make a picture about his great bullfight bull pal, Carlos Aruz. I memorized it. Okay. <laughs> um, how did that happen? Why did you leave Hollywood? I well, know you could talk for I, I don't think, uh, David, that yeah. there's going to be another matador that's a motion picture director. And I was tired of doubling Tony Quinn and Bob Stack and Gilbert Rowland. Mm. And I thought, God, you've got the world right in your in palm of your hand. Your best friend in life is, is Carlos Arruzzo, who's the best matador in the world. Let's get rid of these guys and play yourself. Mm. And everything in the world happened to me during those seven years. Uh, even Carlos was killed in an automobile accident. I stayed there and finished it. Mm. And I feel, and I still do, that quitting must be something like stealing. Once you steal something, the next time around it becomes a little easier. Mm. And I was damned if I was going to quit that picture. Mm. And uh, I'm very proud of it. Mm. We'll get it out this next year, get it out again. You are known primarily as a director of Westerns. You've made a lot of films that were not Westerns. We shot The Missing Juror here, which was the first That's film. my second picture, for God's sake. Yeah. These, of course, were the days before film school. So tell us about how... how I you, didn't learn anything in film school. How did you, but how did you learn to direct? I watched my first pictures, and I said, Good God, don't ever do that again. <laughs> <laughs> now tell us about the importance of Bullfighter and the Lady um, in your filmmaking, because you made films for about 10 years, as Oscar Bedecker, this was the first film you saw in your name, Bud Bedecker. Well, the first good picture I made. How did that come about? How did John Wayne get involved? He heard about the screenplay that I had written, mm -hmm. and I met James Edward Grant, who eventually became the head of Alcoholics Anonymous in Los mm -hmm. Angeles, and you have to be really a drunk to get that far. <laughs> <coughs> Duke, Duke hired him to write from my 78 pages the story of my life, and he might as well have written a story about uh, tennis. Hmm. And Bob Stack read his story, and he came to me, and he said, Bud, I'm going to go home. I can't make this thing. And uh, I said, Bob, we'll shoot the 78-page script, which we did. And Duke and I disagreed about a lot of things. And uh, I've done six forwards for John Wayne books in the last couple of years. And before they can put the book out and use my forward, and you know I memorized this because I wrote it. Each one says, everyone who really knows me knows that I truly love John Wayne. But if they know me well, they'll also realize I really hated his guts. <laughs> so he was angry at me, and he had a pot, and he cut 42 minutes out. Hmm. And it took me about 10 years to get him back. Hmm. So that was a sad period of my life, yeah. and the worst thing that ever happened to me. But a few years later... You were working with him again. He produced Seven Men From Now. Yeah. That started this series of films, which really what you're most famous for, the films you made with Randolph Scott. Well, I think they're the best. Mm -hmm. Bullfighter and the Lady and the six out of seven of the Scott pictures. <laughs> I like very bad, much. And you cannot be modest when you love your own stuff. When you see Lee Marvin and Richard Boone and Pernell Roberts and Craig Stevens and James Coburn in their first pictures, yeah. You have to be really happy that you've had something to do with that. You are naming these marvelous villains. I mean, what's great about these films is the so-called bad guys are so appealing and interesting. There's a special chemistry that these 
films have? Part of it comes from Randolph Scott, part comes from working Not with Not a lot comes from Randolph Scott. <laughs> <laughs> no, let me explain but something that, yeah. so you'll understand that. He didn't need me. He d he's the richest guy in Hollywood from oil wells. One day I walked at Lone Pine, I walked out to get on horseback and exercise on a Sunday. And people don't know this. They think it was Sinatra, Bob Hope, people like that. And Randy had a, a, a rocking chair that he didn't need. He was the most wonderful guy in the world. And he was rocking back and forth and reading the Wall Street Journal. And I walked out. He said, Bud, the most terrible thing happened to me. And I said, what happened, Randy? He said, three of my new oil wells blew out. I said, how many came in? He said, 11. But damn it, you shouldn't lose an oil well with today's technology. So he was really loaded. But the way we got uh, Randy, uh, Bert Kennedy, who was very responsible for what the pictures turned out to be, his scripts were so beautiful. I walked on the set one day, and Duke had given me a beautiful script called Seven Men From Now. And I read 35 pages of it at lunch, and I had never read anything this good. And I walked back, and John Ford and a very handsome young man and John Wayne were sitting on Mr. Ford's, uh, I was allowed to call him Jack, everybody else called him Jesus or Coach or <laughs> terrifying man. And uh, I walked on the set and I said, Duke, this is the best thing I've read in my life, I want to do it. He said, well, you couldn't have read much of it if the, in an hour for lunch. I said, I read 35 pages, I don't have to see another thing and I would give anything in the world to meet this author. He said, Mr. Bert Kennedy, Mr. Bud Bedeker. And I said, Bert, what a pleasure. You are brilliant. It's wonderful to meet you. He said, no, no, no. We met two years before. I was a villain in your picture with Rock Hudson. <laughs> and we were together ever since. And, and when uh, he became a director, he called me in Mexico City. And he said, Bud, a terrible thing or maybe a good thing happened. Uh, I'm a director. They just made me a director. What should I do? I said, don't film anything but your own scripts and don't change a word. And talking about John Ford, he and I were deadly enemies when he cut 42 minutes. He didn't do it. Duke did it. And we became great friends. And he was dying over such a long period of time. And Mary and I would have horses come from Lisbon to Mexico City to Tijuana and then cross the border after months of hassle and money. And once a month, we would go by Palm Desert and and see Mr. Ford. And I was allowed to call him Jack. And I would say, I know you've all seen my men, I would all be uh, Lenny, and I would play the part. And instead of saying, tell me about the rabbits, I would always say, Jack, tell me about what you're going to do with your, with your new picture. And it was about the Buffalo soldiers, the black troops in the Civil War. And he would tell me these wonderful things he was going to do. And the last time I saw him was two weeks before he died. And uh, I stood up sitting on the bed. Mary always went in and talked to Mrs. Ford, who was very old, too. And uh, I said, Jack, tell me about your, your picture with the, the colored troops. He said, Bud, you know I'm never going to make another picture. And he reached up and he held my hand like my wife would. And he said, listen, kid, if you ever want to be known as the best director in the world, just remember, everybody else is a son of a bitch. <laughs> that was the real John Ford. <laughs> and when I said that Randy didn't have too much to do with it, I meant that with great love and affection. He just played Randolph Scott and allowed us to 
use all these new fellas you'd never seen before. Hmm. He said one day to us, who was that fellow in the red underwear I played that scene with this morning? And I said, his name's Coburn, James Coburn. This is his first picture. He said, I like that boy. Let's write some more lyrics for him. And we wrote a scene in our mind and shot it. And if you've seen right, it's my favorite thing in the picture. When Wid wants to know why he's not going to be a partner and, and leave. <laughs> and Rucha uh, Booth uh, said, because... Uh, you're going to work with me. He says, how long have we been together? And he says, well, you're not going to work with me. And he said, three or four years. And, and he says, more like five. We're going to be partners. And he says, partners? Why? And he says, because I like you, Wid. And Coburn says, I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a wonderful scene. And I cut it together and sent it to John Sturgis. And that's how he got Magnificent Seven. Hmm. How did you cast Richard Boone in The Tall Team? This is I, I had seen Richard Boone with the wonderful pockmark face, and I began watching uh, Medic. And I needed somebody to take the place of Lee Marvin, who suddenly was a big star. <laughs> and the studio head said to me, you don't want to move, uh, use him. I said, why? They said, well, you know, he has no sense of humor. Your stuff is funny. And I said, well, I, I bet he does. And he said, well, look, you're going to get what you want anyway. But do Columbia Pictures a favor. Have him over to lunch. Go to the dinner with him. Spend some time with him. See. And, uh, you know, what he's really like, please don't just go out and, and, and hire him. And so I said, okay, I will. So I called him and I said, Mr. Boone, and did Bob better. And he said, oh, congratulations, I just saw seven men from now. And I said, well, we can do the same thing with you. But I have a little bit of a problem. Can you come in today and have lunch with me and maybe spend the rest of the day and we'll get to know each other? And it's at the request of the studio. He said, what seems to be the trouble? And I said, well, I really don't want to tell you yet. But he said, well, I can't do it, Bob. That's a my wife maybe has cancer, but fortunately she didn't. And he said, we're on the way this afternoon to Scripps Clinic near San Diego, and uh, I won't be back until the end of the week. What really is the trouble? And I said, well, the heads of the studio don't think you have a sense of humor. He said, well, you've got to admit those heart operations are pretty friggin' funny. <laughs> so I said, don't even bother to come in to lunch. Just go to wardrobe, get you know. <laughs> and that was Richard Boone. Okay, this is a question about the spirit of Maverick. I'm glad you asked that because it's a very funny story. I could do no wrong at Warner Brothers and Mr. Warner. I always like the tough guys and they like me. I'm a little worried about the ones that try to tell you what to do because they're not going to get away with it. But uh, uh, I was walking down the street to have lunch one day and Mr. Warner came along, the colonel, and he had four or five people with him. And he said, Bud, come on here. I want to show you something. I said, well, I'm just going to have lunch, Jack. And he said, look, come with me. I want to show you something. They were making sayonara uh, in the islands. And so I walked in and sat down next to the boss. Now, nine minutes went by a whole reel. And uh, there was a very handsome young guy in a green officer's uniform from the Navy and Marlon Brando. Now, I won't go into the nine minutes, but I'll give you 30 seconds of it. Josh Logan was directing, and Marlon Brando said, are you rolling, Josh? He said, yeah, we're rolling. He said, where do I look? 
said, over there, the fellow waving the handkerchief on the bridge. Well, hell, I don't want to look at a fellow over on a bridge. Film, 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 film. <laughs> Warner's getting more and more angry. And he said, okay, get him out. Of Thank you. Now, what's my line? Oh, Mr. Brenner, you, you say, here he comes now. And he turns to the young man, the handsome young man, and he said, do you know your line? And the fellow said, yeah, I, I know mine, Marlon. This went on for nine minutes. And the minute the lights came on, I looked up there and I said, that's Maverick. And Warner said, I wouldn't work with that son of a bitch again as long as I live. I said, who are you talking about? He said, Brando. I said, I'm not talking about Brando. What's his name? And they said, James Garner. And that's the way he got the job. We became great friends. He was 40 pounds overweight and we spent a couple of months together and he got in shape. And uh, I loved Jim Garner. He's just, just great. And I did the first four, too, because I liked Garner so much, I didn't. The, the location plays such a key role in the films. Lone, Lone Pine. Lone Pine. Yeah. Just if you could talk about how you found that and, and how you Well, they found it hundreds of years ago. And I've made nine pictures there, and you, you can't get a bad close-up of a gorilla in Lone Pine. It's so mm -hmm. beautiful. And uh, I would take a couple of my horses up and ride around on Sundays. Yeah and I know every rock in Lone Pine. Hmm. And a wonderful story because whenever you think you're really smart and doing something that's very good, I love stories that happen to me, and this one I love particularly. I wanted in Ride Lonesome for Randolph Scott to be this big, way in the background before the titles come on. And he comes closer and closer and closer on horseback, and finally we turn and there's Jimmy Best and we start the picture. I found this great spot. I rode and rode and rode, and way up at the top of this mountain, I found this spot, and Lucian Ballard was with me. And uh, I said, Lucian, tomorrow morning at 7.30, I want a 35 lens and put it right here for the opening shot of the picture. And he walked over about 10 feet, and he dug a hole, and there was a spike. And he said, come over here a minute. Raul Walsh and I made this shot 11 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, mine. <laughs> well, people ask me why I never went to Monument Valley, out of respect for Mr. Ford. But I think Lone Pine uh, is more beautiful, and I think you're right. You just can't make a bad shot there, but I would never follow him. You mentioned before about Lucian Ballard was seven The best. Did he do all the, the seven films with Scott? I wish he had. I have to, to use a little naughty word, but my introduction to Lucian was really something. I walked in the producer's office on Magnificent Matador, and my producer was sitting with his feet up on uh, my desk. And over in a corner, in a big leather chair, was absolutely the most beautiful man. And with Lucian, you could say that I've ever seen in my life. And as I walked in, not trying to be too obvious, like, God, I wish I had a part for this guy, my producer said, uh, Mr. Bud Bedeker, uh, Mr. Lucian Ballard. And I said, Mr. Ballard, I've seen everything you've ever photographed, and it's such a pleasure to meet you. And my producer, his name was Eddie Alperson, said, well, I'm glad you two are friends. This is your cameraman. Well, if you're a director, especially with my disposition, and somebody tells me that's my cameraman, this stuff's going to hit the fan. So I said, let me tell you something, and I gave a lecture. 
Don't drive another nail. Don't turn on another light. Don't cast anybody. Don't do anything. Stay off the set. And when I got through, I hadn't been looking at the man who became one of my dearest friends. And I said, Mr. Ballard, I'm terribly sorry that you got involved in this tirade. I am very, very proud that you're going to be my cameraman. But my only thing is, because of my background, when we get in the bull rings, I have a very definite idea of where I want to put my cameras. He said, Mr. Bedecker, as far as I'm concerned, you can take your cameras and stick them up your ass. <laughs> and he became my best friend. We have, I have never had a picture where we didn't have a really happy set, where everybody liked everybody. It's a lot easier that way. And regarding cameramen, if the director and the cameraman really don't care about each other, you're not going to have as good a picture. And that doesn't mean they have to answer each other questions. It's just a thing that you've got or you don't have. Uh, what, what is the one film you did with, with uh, Randall Scott you don't like? That's very easy. I always say I made six good pictures with Randolph Scott. Uh, Randy called me at the end of the fourth picture, and he said, Bud, I have terrible news. And I thought he'd had a problem with one of his adopted kids, and it frightened me for a minute. I said, what is it? He said, I have one more picture to do on my contract at Warner Brothers, and I can't get out of it. So I said, I'll take care of it. So the next morning I went over to Warner Brothers, and I found out who was producing the picture. And I asked if I could come up and introduce myself, and he said, please do. And I went up, and he said, how do you like the script? And I said, I haven't read it. He said, what do you mean you want to make it? I said, I want to save it. I don't want you people to screw it up. So uh, I made the picture, and I don't think we screwed it up. And it helped. It didn't hurt Randy. But if somebody else had made the picture without my deep love and affection for Randy Scott, uh, it might have been even worse than it is. And it's not a Randolph Scott picture. It's a Warner Brothers damn western. <laughs> he was more classic than we could put him on on film. He was so beautiful, such a great guy. Hmm. And uh, he didn't need me. He didn't need Bert. He just needed to buy some more oil wells. <laughs> no, he was really for real. How did you cast Wendell Corey in The Killers? He was already cast, and wasn't he wonderful? Uh, what Lucian Ballard and I came by, and he really did become my and my wife's dearest friend. Uh, I read in in the paper that they were making an 18-day picture, and when Lucian Ballard and I came back from Mexico, everybody in Hollywood said. Don't ever let those two characters ever work together again. We'll make another Cleopatra and the studio will go broke. So I went over the same way, the only other time I ever did it, and said, please let me make this picture with Joseph Cotton and Rhonda Fleming. You can't get better looking than that. And great, great gal. And the interesting thing is we made it in 15 days to show them what we could do and just get out of our way. And uh, none of the three actors objected. They, and the usual actor would say, what happened to the three days we could have used? It was done, I thought, so well that it was a good picture. And I had never seen it until last year uh, when they ran it in a retrospective in Los Angeles. And it's so great when you're a little worried about what you've done, when you sit and watch one of your own pictures and say to yourself, damn, that's good. I want to ask you about working with Audie Murphy. Well, 
what are you going to do for an encore when you got the Congressional Medal of Honor when you're 18 years old? I love Dottie Murphy. <laughs> no, he was great and a dear, dear friend. He didn't drink, he didn't smoke, he didn't womanize, but he gambled about everything. Two crows on a fence, he'd bet you $1,000 that the one on the left would fly off first. <laughs> Sometimes. I lost a lot of money with it. The earliest films of Sam Peckinpah kind of take off from where your films were. Did Peckinpah ever acknowledge any debt to you or be friendly with him? Not at all. But I'll tell you a very funny story. <laughs> um, Lucian Ballard came down to see me when I was stuck in Mexico, and he said, I just worked with a going to be a great director, a kid named Sam Peckinpah and I want you to meet him, you'd really like him. So my sweetheart at the time was Elsa Cardenas, who was a beautiful, beautiful, darling young lady, not just an actress. And Sam sent her uh, a script where this lovely girl was going to play a hooker in the middle of the picture. And I read it and I said, I need to, you don't, don't, don't do this, you don't need to do this. And the hell with the American pictures. And uh, so he heard about it and uh, he sent a limousine for me. And I'm the only one in the world who ever went from a new Rolls Royce to a second class bus. And I was in that position at the time. So I got in the back seat. I felt like I should sit up front, but the chauffeur insisted. So I sat in the back seat and we went to the Del Prado Hotel. Mr. Peckinpah got up and he was a great director. Don't misunderstand me. You asked me a personal question. I didn't like him at all. I'll tell you why. So at any rate, uh, he was there with my crew. Uh, Randy wasn't there and Lucian Ballard wasn't there, but Joe McRae was there and everybody else was there. And uh, Sam came walking across the room and he had his Bloody Mary here and he turned it over here like this and he put his hand out and he said, Bud, I just want you to know that uh, I've seen Bullfighter and the Lady ten times. And I didn't mean it this way. I just unconsciously said, how do you like my westerns? He said, I never saw one of them. <laughs> So we were a little different, but wow. he was a great, great director who should still be alive making good pictures. But our personalities are a little bit. I, um, I do want to ask you about Sergio Leone because there's a, to me, there's a, oh, the clearly, Le clearly. The Leone thing just happened a couple of years ago. Yeah. I shouldn't tell these, but trust me, I think you begin to believe me now. <laughs> we were, Mary and I were flying across the ocean to be honored in Italy. And I hadn't seen the program. And I got up, I looked at this program, and I said, oh, damn. And Mary said, what's the matter? And I said, look who's the head of the, of the judges, Sergio Leone. And Mary said, so? I said, well, they wrote the same thing about Leone that they wrote about Sam Peckinpah, that they stole everything from me. And she, I said, so if you see a little fat guy with a beard who looks real cute, tell me, and we'll walk the other way. I don't want <laughs> to meet him. So we were going up the stairs in Milan with the bellboys in front of us with our luggage, and down around the corner came Leone. And he looked at me, swear to God, and said, Buddy, darling, I stole everything from you. <laughs> <laughs> and we had, for the whole week of the festival, we had breakfast, lunch, and dinner together. And finally, we agreed on something. He said to me, You know something? I want to produce your next picture, and if I produce it and you direct it, everybody in the world will see it. And I said, great, just one thing, stay off the set. 
<laughs> uh, so I loved him. He was a great guy. And we were really going to work together. And then he was going to do the big Russian Revolution and never got to make it. He died. But there's a big difference between you stole everything and I, the reason I do violence, I want the world to know how against it I am. The connection with the film score, it seems like the music that is played in the, in the other one is uh, studio music or it, it's a theme that the music is the same. Well, you know, you're probably, you're probably right because they didn't spend any money on these pictures. And uh, we did the best we could and I think we did pretty well, but that's the last thing. Uh, that they do, and we found out way after I finished making these Scott pictures that three of them have the same theme. How cheap can you get? <laughs> what did you like working at CinemaScope? I loved it. Okay. You yeah. know, CinemaScope was invented to get rid of television because nobody was going to the, the movies, and people had a different idea than I had. They thought with CinemaScope your leading lady should be over here and your leading man should be over there and then you fill the middle with trees. <laughs> and uh, I put them both together over here and it was a choice of the audience. You want to look at the trees or the two people? Are... <laughs> but I liked it a lot and I think that the CinemaScope pictures that I made with Scott are very good. Now we're back to Comanche Station, of course, is in CinemaScope. Yeah. We're about to see. How is it decided um, which Warren scope and which warrant? I mean, when? Oh, well, the studio, they were going to spend the money. It costs that much more to shoot in scope? No, they thought they could get more people back to the theaters, mm, okay. and it was beautiful. Mm -hmm. But uh, everybody went back to television. The yeah. pictures got so bad they had to look at television. <laughs> okay. This is not a very sophisticated question, I'm afraid, but uh, I love the tall tea. This is not the first time I've seen it. But I have to ask you, what the heck is the title? Okay. It was <laughs> you know, it took Bert and me one year to find out what it was. The original title was The Captives, but it would have cost Columbia $200 to buy the title. $200. So all of a sudden, $200. So I would have paid it myself if I'd known what the hell they were doing. So uh, we found out that the ranch, the owner of the ranch where he got the bulls, was going to get it till he got clobbered, was named Tanvorti. And some brilliant 20-year-old executive in New York uh, had thought that would be a good title, and it really took us a year to find out where that came from. So I have no idea what he was thinking. Okay. I walked in my producer's office. I was about to make The Magnificent Matador, and that's about as bad as it can get. And I walked in one day, and he held up Barnaby Conrad's great book about my friend Manolete called Matador. And he said, Bud, I wish we could steal your friend's title. I said, I, I thought, well, I'll kill him right away. So I thought of the worst title I could think of. And he was the head of the studio. I should have known better. So I said, why don't we call it The Magnificent Matador? He said, God, that's great. <laughs> so you have to be really careful. <laughs> Were you actively involved in the restoration for Seven Men Now? There was no restoration. It's exactly the way I shot it. Duke and I fought a lot. And you're not supposed to win if you're fighting with John Wayne. And I won a lot. And he ended up sort of hating my guts. And he just held the picture back 44 years. And now his son is doing a better job, but he's lost too. So you'll see it in theaters soon. Actually, I'm very lucky that they held it up for 44 years because the color's so much better now that it's a better picture. So Michael Wayne, not meaning to, did me a big favor. Did you have, have any contact with Don Siegel and Clint Eastwood when they actually filmed?
Yeah, uh, Ron Ely was one of my best friends, and we lived together for a while in Mexico when I was dead broke trying to write Two Meals for Sister Sarah. And uh, I sat in front of uh, uh, Don and Clint, and I hadn't met Clint yet. And now we're very good friends despite this. When Clint Eastwood, this great director and a fine, fine actor, walked W-A-L-K-E-D down to put out the dynamite, I was in the Pantages Theater and I said, son of a bitch. And there was dead silence and, and Ron said to me, we ought to get up and hit those two guys. Well, I had still a little injury to my said, I'll tell you what, I'll hit Don and you hit Clint. But uh, Don called me the next morning and he was a great director and he said, Bud, thank you so much for not walking out on the premiere. There's a reason I'm telling you all this. Uh, and I said, Don, how could you make a piece of crap like that? And he said, well, it's a wonderful thing to get up every morning and every week and know there's a check in the mail. And I said, Don, it's a better thing to get up in the morning and look in the mirror when you shave and not be ashamed of what you see. <laughs> and I have now gone back to my original script where she was a nun to the last two minutes of the picture. And the Los Angeles Times printed what I thought of the picture where I said the stupidest son of a bitch in the theater was the leading man, couldn't he smell her breath? Here's a, here's a nun smoking cigars and taking shots of bourbon. It's not my nun. But we will do the picture. I won't direct it, but I have the screenplay and shoot it just exactly like it was written. She was a nun till the last two minutes of the picture. The only one that was keeping her out of bed with Clint was God, and he's pretty important. <laughs> That was a code, but this is very interesting. A lot of people have asked that. In Ride Lonesome, I called the studio halfway through the picture, and I said, fellas, I don't want to kill James Coburn and Pernell Roberts. And they were aghast. They said, what do you mean you don't want to kill them? They're the, they're the villains. You have to kill them. I said, I don't have to do anything. They said, well, all right. Will you do us a favor? This was after a long argument. This is the head of the studio, Sam Briskin. He said, will you shoot your way, whatever it is, and then kill them like we have in the script. I said, of course. And we got to the last day, and I'd saved uh, the killing for the last. You know, it was a very important thing the studio wanted. And son of a gun, it got to be 4 o'clock in the afternoon, <laughs> and all of the toilets and the dressing rooms and everything was in the way, can you imagine, of where I wanted to film. And we never got it. And I went back to the studio and we cut the picture together and all the powers that be joined me. And we ran it. And they said, God, that's great. I said, you want to see the death scene? They said, hell no, we don't need it. And I said, okay. <laughs> you have to do those crooked things. What was the, the sort of creative atmosphere like? How much um, freedom did you have to tell, you know, to tell the kind of story you wanted to tell with these movies? Um, Freedom, my dear friend David, is a word I have. They don't fool around too much. <laughs> and uh, Bert would write beautiful scripts, yeah. and I would read them and just marvel at what he had done. And then we would be on the set together, and we would say, why don't we do this, why don't we do that? And I would guess that 
maybe 30% of each finished picture was never on, on paper. When we first started talking about this show, you sent me a, a manuscript which mm. was filled with these incredible stories from your life. I'm just going to ask one because it amused me so much, um, the Dr. Bash story. <laughs> um, after reading the story, I, I couldn't believe you even survived your, your youth. <laughs> Could you just tell us about this incident and how you, um, well, you can show us the scars? If first, like. I have to tell you, uh, <laughs> the first book that will be out again this year is When in Disgrace, the story of my seven years in Mexico. I couldn't possibly direct it because you wouldn't believe one word, and it's all true, and I'm still here. But I think one of the most, forget the bulls, I think one of the most dangerous <laughs> periods of my life, uh, Steve Crane, who at one time was married to Lana Turner and lived with me for a while after she divorced him, and I had to suffer through all of that. And, <laughs> and I was kind of glad she did. He's such a great guy. But uh, he came to me one day and he said, the most wonderful thing, are you losing your hair? And I said, well, I hope everybody is. And he said, no, I'm serious. And I said, yeah, I guess so. I, I look at it and shudder ever so often. He said, for $500, we can save all of our hair. I said, yeah, tell me about it. So he said, there's a Dr. Bash, and he's experimenting with a serum that he has invented. And uh, you, we get two hole, uh, holes in your head. And then he fills it with this new serum, and we'll never lose our hair. So I said, well, $500? I said, why? Why, five, why not 5000 He said, we're the experimentation. You know, then when, when our hair gets, stays in there, uh, you know, then we'll make a lot of money. I said, you mean he'll make it? Well, whatever. So we flipped, and um, I lost. And I went in to meet Dr. Bash, and... Uh, Steve was all really suffering because Lana was on the cover of every magazine in the world. And he was waiting in the other room, and I went in, and they strapped me, which should have made me wonder, <laughs> in, in a chair. And out came the syringe, and the syringe was bigger than I was. And the nurse stood kind of back, I knew later, because I was going to squirt a lot of blood. But uh, he started sticking these holes in my head. And uh, all of a sudden, Steve came in with a beautiful picture and photoplay of Lana on the cover. And I wasn't feeling a thing, uh, you know, but it really was quite a hypodermic needle. And uh, he came in looking at the picture of Lana, and he looked up to show me the picture, and he went like this <laughs> and threw up. Uh, I thought I was in a little trouble. So. <laughs> I had always been 5'11", working on six feet, never quite made it. And I went home and went to bed, and the next morning I was six feet three. I had a head that was up to here, and I was in the middle of a picture. And what, what the serum did, it went right to the roots. And where the roots would die from pressure as you got older, this serum kept you from dying, which, of course, it didn't. And so Steve uh, said to me, I'm not going to do it. And I said, well, you know, I've killed a few bulls in my life and no animals otherwise, but if you don't do it, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> so he did it, and he had a beautiful new girl that he was with, really with. And as he went to sleep in the pain of that night, he slept on her shoulder. And the next day, he wasn't six feet three, but he had a big hole on the side of his head where her shoulder had been. So years went by, 
And I wanted Mary to meet uh, Steve and Steve to meet my wife. And we were there with the people from Columbia. And uh, Evelyn Lane, who was Miss Columbia, she ran the studio even more than Harry Cohen. And she said, Steve wants to ask you a question. I said, what is it, Steve? He said, uh, do you have any problem with your with your head? I said, no, <laughs> not when I got back to 511, I didn't, but uh, why? And Evelyn started to laugh. They thought Steve had cancer of the brain. He gained a little height, so the doctor opened him up, and all of this stuff like putty oozed out. And I said, Steve, you know what that's from, don't you? And he said, you didn't have any trouble like this? And I said, no. And I said, you're lucky because if I had had and you had it, I would really would have killed you. <laughs> and before Steve died, we went into the bathroom together and he showed me that he had had a, some more hair sewn in. So, you know, forget the life I've led. That was the worst experience. <laughs> <laughs> but all the men, the women don't give a damn, but all the men want to know about that. So I was your, your hair looks pretty good. Well, well, yeah, what I've got left was exactly like it was. And it cost me $500. Not bad, not bad. As one reads this life story of yours, which is so um, far-fetched that, it, that it's, it's, nobody could have made it up, I want to ask about like, where this sort of lust for adventure came from, because you said that you, were, you uh, were born not with a silver spoon in your mouth, but with a golden spoon. You came from a very well, successful uh, I Chicago family. I came from a very, very filthy rich family. And it took me 30 years to find out I was adopted. And I'm not being disrespectful, but when I was 30 and found out right after the war, I really said, thank you, thank you. Because <laughs> I didn't get along very well with my parents. But uh, I don't think uh, we were laughing about it today. All, I've lost 30 pounds. I really don't look like this. And this is all plastic surgery. And there's not a hell of a lot about me that hasn't been fixed one way or the other. So uh, when I was eight, nine, ten years old, I was the biggest sissy. We called them sissies in those days. I have ever known in my life in retrospect looking back. And you fellas aren't old enough to know it, but when I was eight, nine, ten years old, we didn't have zippers. We had buttons. And every day after school, they would <laughs> tear my pants open and throw my pants up in a tree, and I would race home. And when I was a sophomore in high school, I became the 100-yard dash champion of Indiana, <laughs> which is true. I could run like hell, but I couldn't fight. So I had to, uh, <laughs> I would make a couple of touchdowns and then get the hell kicked out of me on the way home. So I went down to a, a wonderful black gymnasium in the toughest place in Evansville. If my mother known where I was, she would have died. And I had $100 that I had saved for this specific thing. And I said to the owner of the gym, look, I've been beaten up from all directions. I am the champion of the 100-yard dash, but I'd like to survive to get to college. Can you teach me how to fight? And after that, I never lost one. Hmm. They told me things to do that are just terrible. <laughs> Actually, I was uh, curious not about the films, but you must have been temporary at Ohio State with Cassidy Owens, and you say you were a 100-yard I ran next to him one time at the Drake Relays, and I had the best-looking track outfit you ever saw. And I, I looked over at this beautiful young man next to me, 
And he said to me, don't run away and leave me, white boy. And I thought, oh, you poor sucker. <laughs> and we finished, and I came in second, and we were walking back. And uh, I thought, my God, what happened to me? I knew all those six guys to my left, but I didn't know who he was. Nobody did. Wow. And uh, the announcer said, ladies and gentlemen, the results of the 100-yard dash are first uh, Jesse Owens, Cleveland Tech, second Oscar Bedeker Jr., Central High School, Evansville, Indiana. Hmm. And I don't know who came in third by that time. I was shocked. <laughs> but they said, and the time is 9 and 4 10 seconds, which ties the world's record. Wow. Well, when I went to Ohio State, Jesse was a senior, and I was a very green freshman. And it was that much difference because I weighed 170 at Culver, and I went to Culver for two years to put on a little more weight because uh, at 192 pounds, I was the smallest running back on the Ohio State team. Hmm. And I would see a lot of him when I could. He was so special. I will guarantee you, with all the great runners that there are today, if Jesse Owens had had these tracks and these shoes and this equipment, there would be new world records that were below what we have now. Wow. <laughs> Did you ever meet uh, Ernest Hemingway? Yeah. He wanted to meet me because he thought I was crazy. I was the only American in the world. You know, he was very, very special. I got to know him pretty well. Hmm. Fighting with oh, that's all we talked about. What the hell else am I going to talk to? <laughs> 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 Earlier in the speech, you had an opportunity to learn from directing. You started directing, came to it on your own, and um, through making movies, you got to learn what it meant to be a director. I'm just wondering if you could talk about that um, in relation to the way the films are made now and how people are so good. I think it's very simple. I, I think the problem today is that they don't deal with people anymore. They blow up buildings and sink ships. And if you go to a theater like this and people aren't in love or they frighten you or they make you laugh, the things that we want to do, you don't have a movie. And uh, people have asked me, and it's a compliment that they ask, is this, why are your pictures different than any other director's pictures? Well, it's true. And this is just the way I've lived. Everything that I put on the screen, I have either done or I know it can be done. Mm -hmm. I don't have Kirk Douglas and Clint Eastwood walking down the street and they're shooting at them with machine guns and they don't get hit because they're <laughs> the two leading men. Mm -hmm. I just don't think they, they understand that we would be much more fascinated with what we see on the screen if th there were people we could relate to. Uh, when we ran The Killers Loose, uh, I got up on the stage, an audience like you, you know, you're here and it's great. <laughs> and uh, I said, do you people realize the most terrible thing that ever happened to Hollywood? And they said, no, what? I said, Titanic. I'm not talking about the picture. I'm talking about the expense. Do you know how many pictures I can make with 200 million? 200. <laughs> They asked me in New York, and you'll know the word, uh, why I hadn't made a picture in the last 18 years. And I said, I don't think a leading lady has to say F-U-C-K to establish character in the first reel. <laughs> and I still don't believe it. No, I think, I think there are some very good pictures. Uh, I hope that Curtis Hansen will direct my book. Uh, I saw... Uh, L.A. Confidential, 
after I had seen him for the first time in years, and I knew with all the profanity, I knew I would hate it and would be ashamed of it, and I just loved it. And I thought, I don't care if he said that, it, that's where it belongs. But I just kind of maneuver my scripts around so I don't have to use four-letter words. Yeah, I'm not really like to, but there are a few whom I admire. And it's not a long list, but there are some very good ones there. I, I decide whether I like people or not, not whether I like actors or not. You can usually take a nice guy or a lovely lady, and if they have a brain in their head, you can help them enough to be good on the screen. But I just don't work with anybody I don't really like. So thank you so much for coming. Thank you for listening. The Pinewood Dialogues at Museum of the Moving Image are made possible by generous support from the Pannonia Foundation. To learn more about the museum, visit www.movingimage.us.